bias. Anti-transgender bias. And legislation. And legislation. And persistent structural racism. And persistent structural racism. Directly impact. Directly impacts. The devastating rates. The devastating rates. Of suicide. Of suicide. Unemployment. Unemployment. Physical and sexual violence. Physical and sexual violence. Poverty. Poverty. Incarceration. Incarceration. And homelessness. And homelessness. Experienced by transgender people of color. Experienced by transgender people of color. Trans and queer people of color. Trans and queer people of color. Demand a living wage. Demand a living wage. And freedom. And freedom. Welcome to the Weekly Review with Roman. Today is March 25th, 2016. Started off the show with Scenario by Tribe Called Quest. Uh, Fife Dog uh, passed away at the age of 45 a few days ago. So I wanted to start off the show with a song by Tribe Called Quest. And that was just, I uh, just played um, something very encouraging, which is a rally outside the governor's mansion in North Carolina. And there's a lot of governors in this country who are assholes. And I am constantly, I don't know why I'm surprised, but I feel for a while I was really like hating on Scott Walker, uh, the governor of Wisconsin. He's pretty much a terrible, terrible politician and everything he enacts is very uh, just reprehensible and backwards. And then of course there's Sam Brown back in Kansas. don't even want to get into that. And then there's, of course, now, and has been for a long time, Pat McCrory from North Carolina. And uh, two days ago, uh, he signed into law a bill that would undo 
uh, any protections against LGBTQ folks in the entire state. So you could pretty much prevent people from being fired for being gay or trans. Um, you wouldn't be able to de deny housing, and that's kind of been reversed. And then the big part of this also is in Charlotte, they had passed a bill that people are allowed to use the bathrooms based on their gender identity, which is common sense. Uh, people know what people know have a sense of what gender they are and act accordingly. And people use bathrooms to pee. However, there's uh, fear about that and a lot of misconception and miseducation, a lot of fear mongering. And there is this still, unfortunately, there's still a belief um, that folks don't recognize or realize. Um, or even get that that trans women are women, and so the, it goes into this whole bathroom panic, and there's been a lot of misinformation and fear that's been spread, and so this law would now require people to use the bathroom that's matched on their birth certificates, which is ridiculous, and they also are making this assumption they're trying to link sexual assault with transgender folks, even though uh, transgender folks are not more likely to commit sexual assaults to, when they're going to the bathroom. It's really, uh, it's it's the same thing with the, with the gay panic, like putting on like all this, people put on their sexual perversions onto other groups and then, oh, but if they go in the bathroom, they might commit sexual assault when it's, and it's people who are kind of pointing the fingers who are the ones who are kind of bringing up these, these ideas of perversion and assault. And there's more U.S. senators who have been convicted of uh, assault, sexual misconduct in a bathroom than trans women. So more U.S. senators have been convicted of uh, sexual misconduct in a bathroom than trans women, yet they want to have these laws against trans women using bathrooms of their choice. Pretty messed up. So the one positive thing when horrific reactionary shit like this is passed is that people, on a good day, people come up and say, no, we're not going to have this. This is, we can't have this. We're going to speak out. And so what we just played was a rally outside the governor's mansion and a lot of folks uh, showed up and they also mentioned uh, Blake Brockington who was an activist who took his own life a, a trans activist and Angel Alicia Walker a trans woman um, who was lost uh, also from from North Carolina and so really uh, folks face the there was very high rates of suicide and homicide within the trans community I talk about that on the show a lot um, it's it's common knowledge and so the more laws that are passed to uh to this idea of like protecting like the the lawmakers i'm I'm trying to, very hard to understand their logic and their their propaganda and a lot of it's oh we, they say that they want to protect women and children however they don't think about the trans women and children who are trans like what about them they are currently being harassed by uh not being allowed to use the bathrooms that they that they want to use um, and it's really like, oh, it's all about protecting cis people. And it's like, really, it's the trans, trans folks who need more protection from the cis people. So uh, it's just really backwards and reactionary. However, a lot of folks, not just the folks in the video, but there's been a lot of like outrage and righteous outrage online. Um, and even big businesses are speaking out against this. And it's a fucking, it's a weird day when I find myself on the same side as Dow Chemical because they've come out against this. Uh, so that's, it's pretty striking. That's really striking, uh, when that happens. So, uh, yeah, I, I do try to look for the, I already have cried today after like listening to this. It's very emotional and very sad. And, um, I also just have so much respect for the folks who went there and, and spoke and everyone out there who is doing the work. 
to uh, undo and kind of correct the bias that's there. And um, the the night I heard about this, I was just really upset. There's also similar laws in, in can like ten- uh, Tennessee and Kansas, uh, similar like bathroom like anti-trans bathroom bills. And there was a lot of ideas that were coming out around the time when the whole gay marriage thing was passed. That whenever there's progress, there's also backlash, and oftentimes backlash ends up hurting the more marginalized folks within the community. So okay, so yeah, gay people can get married. However, some folks who are really homophobic or really not into it are gonna be like, well, we need to do. We still need to like criminalize people. We still need to harm people. What do we do with our feelings of anger? And I think most folks who are homophobic and transphobic are themselves dealing with their own feelings of homosexual desire or feeling like they are trans. Or, um, that you know, coupled with misinformation, uh, mo- yeah, mostly misinformation and a lot of fear mongering, and people need a scapegoat. So then they end up coming for us, and that's not cute. Putting it mildly, and it's dangerous. And there's already, with, even without these horrific laws being passed, there's already a lot of violence. So this, uh, so anyway, so folks, there is, uh, there is another this guy Cooper, who's another, Dem- he's a, he's a Democrat in North Carolina. I don't. I I don't trust politicians in general. So he put out a video though, calling out McCrory being like, and he he's a McCrory's like competitor. So he was saying, oh, we we won't stand for discrimination. However, also in, and also in his video, I shouldn't say however, but also in his video, he's like, one, we don't like discrimination, and two, this is going to be financially terrible for the state. And as human beings, the first and only, I mean, the main point should be that no one discrimination should be like that should be the main focus. Like no one is allowed to be. Not, we don't have to live in a tiered system where people are treated unfairly based on their identity. Um, but then he went into the whole, well, you know, people are going to boycott, and this is going to be really bad financially for the state. And I guess in some ways, if that's a way to get people on board, okay. I just the, the argument is like that's not, at the end of the day, it shouldn't be about money. It shouldn't be about, that shouldn't be the main focus. The main focus should be about taking care of one another and treating each other with respect. So, and it's similar with, uh, like, I think of the, you know, legalization and decriminalization of cannabis. Like, it should be, oh, it's a, it's medicine that everyone should have access to, end of story. And people should not be locked away for it, end of story. However, uh, especially in Colorado, like Washington, but more so in Colorado, like, they're, they're seeing how financially lucrative it is. And I should say financially lucrative for the folks who've been put in charge, who are allowed to grow, which is also, it's a whole issue in terms of, who has access to growing and profiting off it, which is very problematic. Um, I feel like everyone should have equal access to that. Um, but like people looking, oh, well, we can make money off it instead of actually looking at, oh, it's a medicine that everyone should have access to. So looking at, so on, I, I get I get where they're going with it and where the Cooper guy was going with it, but uh, I think it would be great if folks could really more just look at the, the heart of the matter instead of trying to be like, oh, well, money, like, it's because of the money is another way. However, if that's all, if that's the only language that people speak or understand, then you know whatever means we can to get the to get the word out. But I feel like that can be really troublesome because money oftentimes causes people to do really bad things, like weapons manufacturers. They, that'd be nice if uh, we didn't have any of them. So okay, so this this dude like posted a message like very like you can just ugh, kind of creepy politician like oh like where does he have a heart or a soul? But he's against discrimination, so I guess we'll we'll let that roll. And so then there were some folks who were like, oh yay, good for you, yeah, I'm from North Carolina and I don't support discrimination. So a lot of people are 
there's like a hashtag like we are not this and there's a lot of folks speaking out against it so people were in support of this dude and then there's also people who are like oh like there are actual people who are <laughs> there are actual people who are in support of the governor who are like you know bible thumpers like really reactionary like very transphobic very homophobic and i've complicated relationships with facebook among pretty much everything else in my life and i sometimes hesitate to get involved with discussions on facebook because i'm just going to get angry and i'm also just aware that it's all being recorded you know and for better or for worse it's like oh well better have some record i guess of what one believes in um, but then there's also, am I going to like have a conflict with a stranger? What's that going to, what's that going to resolve? However, like if they're going to put their bigotry out there, I would, I at least want to combat it. And so a lot of folks were doing that. And so I was trying to go into these discussions. It wasn't even discussion. They were just like kind of blanket statements that were false. Like they were calling, they weren't even talking about trans folks. They were calling, they were saying, like, we could, they, there was one person who was like, we can't have pedophiles in bathrooms. And like we're talking about trans people, so I was like, so I was, I was trying very hard not to be mean, even though I was feeling very hurt and very angry, because just calling them names isn't going to solve anything. Um, and just trying to question them and try to get these folks to think about what they're saying and where they're finding their information, because uh, as much as I, I mean, as soon as the law passed, I was filled with so much rage, like so much rage, where I just, I won't even talk about what I was feeling. Not in an unhealthy way, but just because that's the what, what I what my thoughts were. That was like probably not going to help anyone in the long run. Just really angry, angry, angry thoughts. So I do feel like education is one way to at least get folks thinking and to not attack. Because like when someone when I well when I get attacked, I feel hurt and then I get even more defensive. So I was thinking, how can I at least try to engage these folks in conversation? And so, so as far as the person who is assuming that trans folks are all pedophiles they like they didn't even provide a link but they're like oh well there's statistic statistics show that they're you know they're pedophiles and i was like nope i don't even know how to combat that other than like nope you're fucking wrong i didn't say fucking but i was like you're wrong i was like nope and then i said i don't know how i don't know what i followed that up with but it was more than cause i also want a yes and i also want to be like even though he was wrong i was like no but i, I didn't want to say shut them down i'd say no like that is not correct that's not correct and I'm pretty sure I know a lot more trans folks than these folks do, but I didn't say that, but I'm pretty sure that's the case. And then there was someone else who like made a joke. He was like, well, this is good because uh, I, I don't even want to repeat it because I don't want to repeat any transphobia. It wasn't even that funny. It was pretty much like this dude was like, oh my God, if I go on a date with a woman and then it turns out she's trans. And then he like made a comment like he would, cause like he would find out because she would have to use the men's room. And then he's like, oh, I, and then I would run away. And so I was like, what makes you think a trans woman would, would want to go on a date with you? And I said that, and I was like, ha, huh, like, asshole. Because the thing is, it's very, there's this whole thing with, in general, it's putting trans folks down and, like, cis people putting themselves up higher. And it, in reality, it's like, no, no, wh why? It just, it's so, it's so gross. And so, and also, why would trans folks want to go out with transphobes? Like, most folks... You don't want to go out with someone who's an ass, who's an asshole. That's a broad statement, but who's going to be a jerk? Who's going to be transphobic? Who's going to be dangerous or hurtful? So I was like, why? What makes you think that you know a woman, like a trans, a woman of trans experience would want to go out with you? Like, what? Ew! Like, no! Like, you know, you're thinking too highly of yourself, there, buddy. And I wrote that, and I felt that was kind of mean, um, which says a lot because I'm 
super sensitive and I assume everyone else is as sensitive as I am, which is not the case. And then he was like, Oh, I, I don't know. And he was like, I don't know why straight women would, even though straight and transgender are not synonymous or like they're, they're not exclude it's sexuality and gender identity are two different things. All right. I'm trying to understand this person's logic so I can communicate to them and just to understand their thinking. So maybe they could open their mind a little bit. Um, so then he made a comment. He obviously wasn't, I don't think he even got it or was, was hurt by my, my, my jab as it were. And so then I was like, well, why would you run away? And like, why would you run away instead of talking to a person? If you, if you're on a date with someone and you find out they're trans, why would you run away? Cause that he pretty much just called himself a fucking coward at the end of the day. Uh, so, and I have not gone back to revisit that thread. I am afraid of being triggered. It's very like, ugh. Um, but I do feel, uh, if I have the energy, um, even if I don't have the energy, because I, I do a lot of stuff when, when I don't feel like I have the energy, the self-preservation, uh, the, the only way, or one way, I should say, there's, I guess, lots of ways to make things change is to have discussions and to get folks to open their minds and to be critically and to be critical thinkers, even if they're not used to it. And also to undo a lot of the propaganda they've heard and misinformation they've heard. Uh, it's the very least uh, one can do. So that's how I spent a few hours, a few, few nights ago uh, when I heard that, that news. And it's up to everyone. It's not just us trans folks. We need, uh, we need some cis folks to step up and to really to correct your peers when you hear transphobic jokes and misinformation because uh, this, this stuff's really dangerous. It's, ha it's been dangerous even before these kind of laws are going into place. Things are already dangerous, so we need folks to step up. Oh, speaking of Pat McCrory, and here's a great segue, he's an asshole. There's a lot of governors who are asshole. Chris Christie, I'll just throw that name out there. Jim Spence from Indiana, not a cool dude. Um, I, I will say to try to counterbalance with some positivity uh, Jerry Brown, the governor, and I, 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 I'm again skeptical of all people in office, pretty much, or most people, a lot of people. I should say a lot of people. I won't make a blanket statement. A lot of people in office, especially governors. Um, he did say though that if if Trump was elected, that he would build a wall around California to protect us from Trump, and I thought that was quite humorous. Anyway, getting back to to Pat McCrory, uh, part of the reason that he's been doing this. Uh, this bill is to distract folks from the fact that their water is poisoned. Uh, that's not really making the news. And it's similar to what has happened in Flint and a lot of other places. And who knows, who knows where else, where there's the water supply is being tampered with. And he, um, McCrory had a relationship with Duke Energy, which is like one of the big energy uh, companies in North Carolina. And they had polluted a bit. And they they were like, and then they warned people, and then they retracted their warning. So I'm gonna read a little bit. So also, this is just to know when when folks kind of like with with I mean, gay marriage. It's like people, the fact that we're even having to talk about this. Like, how long have I just been talking about stupid shit? Like, if this law wasn't passed, what could this time have been? And all this other time, you know, it's like we spend so much time trying to combat uh, uh, discrimination against folks based on bodies and if that if we didn't have to use that time to combat ignorance and prejudice we could use that time so much more wisely to build a better world but instead we have to like combat these idiots who are in an office and that's sad and also just a reminder that when these things happen when these really outrageous things happen to try to be really that makes people very you know it's like these divisive 
issues, it they're oftentimes covering up really bad shit. And so this is it. So this is um, a, I've done some research and looked at a few different uh, articles on this. And this is from a site that's uh, more kind of consumer uh, driven. And it's uh, don'tdrinkthewater.com. <laughs> Cannot make that up. And uh, this is about folks who are angry at McCrory and just to learn about the crisis. So I'll read a little bit about this. So this is about what's happening in North Carolina. And the governor seems to want to prevent people from using the bathroom of their choice instead of actually ensuring that the water that they're drinking is, is safe. That sounds like someone's priorities are really fucked up. And also that he's hiding some really bad stuff. So hopefully folks will also have the energy while in addition to fighting these terrible laws to uh, stand up and be like, no, you need to like make sure that all the citizens are have, have healthy drinking water. So this is, learn more about this crisis. Hundreds of North Carolina families living near one of the state's 14 coal ash ponds are forced to use bottled water to cook, brush their teeth, and drink. For these families, this is a public health emergency. Their own well water has been poisoned with toxic chemicals found in coal ash. Some of these coal ash lagoons are adjacent to municipal water sources that serve hundreds of thousands of residents. One of those coal ash pits flows into Mountain Island Lake, a drinking water reservoir for North Carolina's largest city, Charlotte. Right now, the state of North Carolina is working on a classification system to prioritize cleanup at these coal ash sites. Unfortunately, while all the pits are leaking toxic chemicals, only a few are currently listed as high priority. How can coal ash removal not be a high priority while neighboring water is so contaminated that residents cannot cook with or drink it? Does this make any sense? Hundreds of working families across North Carolina have gotten letters from the state of North Carolina warning them not to drink their water. Another state agency which regulates the coal ash polluter claims the water is safe. Meanwhile, Governor Pat McCrory, who once worked for the polluter, has said nothing to address these families' concerns. These families are pleading for a solution. Some would move, but they cannot sell their homes. They need clean water. They need answers. They want the coal ash cleaned up, and they don't think electricity ratepayers should have to pay for the polluter's mess. And they need answers from the governor. Duke Energy should pay for the cleanup of all coal ash sites without passing the cost on to ratepayers. In South Carolina, SCENG is committed to fully excavating its coal ash without increasing rates for its customers. Duke Energy made this mess, not ratepayers. This is the company's responsibility to properly clean it up, no matter what the cost. And Governor McCrory, who once worked for Duke Energy, should stand up for residents and protect clean water, not side with the company where he was once employed. All communities deserve clean water. It's past time for Duke Energy to remove its coal ash from leaking unlined pits near communities across North Carolina to safer, dry, lined storage away from our waterways and groundwater. And the next part says, who is Governor McCrory really, really protecting? By now, most people have heard about Governor Pat McCrory's secret dinner meeting with state environmental regulators and Duke Energy executives. This is yet another example of Governor McCrory's looking out for his wealthy donors and corporate polluters instead of everyday people who expect public officials to protect their clean air and clean water. After the secretive meeting, state regulators reduced Duke Energy's fine from $25 million for one leaking coal ash pond to $7 million for all 14 sites. Governor McCrory promised to hold Duke Energy accountable for the coal ash spill, but his administration has repeatedly helped the governor's former employer avoid responsibility. 
when was the last time Governor McCrory hosted dinner for groups working to maintain clean air and water in North Carolina? When, for that matter, have average North Carolinians ever been on McCrory's dinner guest list? Governor McCrory needs to come clean about his secret dinner with Duke Energy execs. What was discussed? What did Governor agree to do for Duke Energy while big decisions about coal ash were being were still being decided? And they have a, a public hearing schedule, and this was for March. And there's still one coming up uh, Tuesday, March 29th at 6 p.m. If anyone is listening here in North Carolina, it's at the Marshall Steam Station, 2550 US 70, Hickory, North Carolina. And they have more information on the don'tdrinkthewater.com. So, uh, yeah, it's interesting to see how everything's connected and what's being hidden, what's under the surface. I've always been interested in that. And uh, this country uh, does a lot of, there's a lot of things under the surface that aren't discussed or aren't talked about. And we're given these distractions um, while really terrible things are happening. I mean, there's, these distractions are terrible and what's actually happening too is also terrible uh, beneath the surface. So I think it's important to, to question, uh, to question all of that. So moving into the next stories, and there's quite a bit to get to today. There, we've got some voter repression all around, uh, but especially in Arizona. And I'll, I'll get to that because I just mentioned it. So that's, there's my segue for you. And then we'll get to some local news. Uh, Rebecca Solnit wrote a piece about Alex Nieto um, and the gentrification of San Francisco. So definitely we'll be getting to that. And we'll be playing some more music to, uh, to cleanse the palate a little bit, as it were. It's a, a lot of heavy news. So this comes from U.S. Uncut. Five outrageous examples of voter suppression in the Arizona prim- Arizona primary, and it's it's funny that uh, even when folks, it's like, here I am talking about a governor, so someone who's voted in, even to get someone, even the, everything is just so corrupt, like the entire process. Oh, well, not to down make myself too down about this, but uh, at least the, these are being called out, so that's a plus side. If no one was talking about it, that would be a problem. And the fact that people are calling this to attention and information is being shared is better than it not being shared at all. So this was written by Zach Cartwright, and this is from March 23rd. Uh, during last night's primary, uh, Arizona election officials showed America what textbook voter suppression looks like. While Hillary, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump both won their respective primaries, the lingering questions of voter disenfranchisement will mar those victories. Here are five examples of how Arizona voters were denied their voice last night. One, lines were so long, people literally spent an entire workday waiting in line. In 2012, Maricopa County, which is the most populous county in Arizona, had over 200 polling locations open on primary day. In 2016, that number was reduced to just 60. This amounted to over 20,000 voters for every polling location, meaning voters had to stand in line for hours to cast their ballots. And they have a tweet from someone named uh, Vaughn Hilliard who said, an aunt and cousin just got their I voted stickers after five hours and 20 minutes in Phoenix. Erica Andiola tweeted, almost 12 a.m. in Arizona, and we have reports of more than 1,000 people still waiting to vote at some of the polls. Yep. Oh, Arizona. Caitlin McGlade says, most counties I surveyed had enough polls for 2.5 thousand or fewer voters per site. Maricopa County, 20,833 voters per polling site. Hashtag AZ primary. 
Wow. Uh, as it turns out, elections in Arizona are governed by the county recorder who determines how many polling places are actually open on election day. The recorder in Pima County, which houses Tucson, had twice as many polling locations open than in Maricopa County, and Pima County is roughly one-third the size of Maricopa County. Maricopa County recorder Helen Purcell was responsible for the reduction in polling places in 2016, justifying it by saying turnout was traditionally low, so the solution was to reduce the number of places where citizens could cast their vote. Local NBC reporter Joe Dana put this in perspective with one tweet. Consider, 2012 primary had 300,000 voters and 200 polling places. 2016 primary had, as estimated, 800,000 voters at 60 polling places. Another local, report, local reporter, Jason Volentine, managed to capture a video of one of the long lines in Maricopa County in a live Facebook broadcast while interviewing several voters who had no choice but to wait hours in the hot sun to participate in the primary. Um, it says, uh, voting in Maricopa County is getting tiresome. We are looking at three-hour wait times. Hi, everybody. I'm Jason. We're at the polling place near 63rd Avenue and Bell in Glendale. It's one of two polling places in Glendale. And I want to show you guys the look of the line. So this right there, that's where you go in to vote. The line wraps all the way down the sides of the church, goes all the way down the side of the church, around through the parking lot. Then it goes back around all the way down the other side. It goes around the church. It comes back out this side, and that is the very end of the line. It's just insane how long that people are waiting to get in this um, uh, get in this line to vote. People are looking at about three hours at this point. If uh, they're just getting in line now, three hours, and of course you have to be in line by seven o'clock, or you don't get the opportunity to vote because they cut it off. If you're in line by seven, they'll let you wait and do it. If uh, you're not in line by seven. That's just um, uh, kind of tough luck at this point. Uh, we've had some reports that some people have had uh, trouble waiting in these lines for that long. They, uh, there was one woman who passed out, according to the owners of this property, which, like I said, this is a church. They had one woman who passed out. People had to run in with water. The fire department has been here twice for uh, a couple different issues. So uh, that's tough for people as well. Um, we've also had, I'm in the way. We've also had some people who uh, said that they can't wait that long to vote. So that's kind of the issue that people are having right now. Um, see if we can talk to some of these people. Hey guys, we're on Facebook Live. How long have you been waiting? Uh, about, yeah, about an hour and a half. I think. Hour and a half? And you're what, in the middle, middle of the line right now, would you say? Middle, middle of the line, I think, yeah. yeah so I'm Listening to my wife try to convince me off of trumping on the cruise here. Okay. <laughs> do you mind waiting in line so long? What do you think? Not a bit. Not a bit. Not a bit. All right. Great. Thanks. All right. Good luck. So uh, that's kind of a, a sampling of people who are uh, waiting along uh, for their opportunity to vote. And that's kind of what we've heard. Some people saying that, you know, they don't mind waiting in line for that length of time, the two and a half, three hours that they've had to wait in line. And then other people, one woman just walked by and said that independents can't vote, which uh, that is a problem too. Independents cannot vote. And uh, some of them have been waiting in this line only to get to the front and realize 
that they're not allowed to vote. So uh, that's been a concern for people as well. Um, here we've got a woman right here. If I can show you, this has been happening uh, as well. People just walking around with water, helping people out. These aren't volunteers for the election, um, the county election with the county election commission. These are just people who feel bad for folks waiting in line, and they've been bringing. So, uh, so you, we get the idea here of, of what's been happening. Uh, interesting that they interviewed uh, some folks debating between Trues and and Cruz and Trump. Okay, so as the continuing on with the uh, with the article here, another man testified that he had waited for over four hours to cast his ballot in Maricopa County, where the line stretched over half a mile. Alex said, "My dad just got home from voting in the AZ primary, was in line for close to five hours, and then they have a video of him. But we've already played enough video. That's we we get it. In the wake of so many stories and social media outbursts about long lines, Helen Purcell became the target of outrage. However, when confronted by a local reporter, Purcell instead blamed the voters for getting in line. Literally, I I kind of want to hear what she has to say. I also I, I'm going to get angry. Purcell may have been responsible for a new Maricopa County record. The last ballot in her county wasn't cast until after midnight local time or 3 a.m. Eastern time. The elections are such a mess in Arizona that the Secretary of State and the Office of the Maricopa County Recorder are admitting they can't handle running an election. Both Purcell and Secretary of, Sec Secretary of State Michelle Reagan support legislation that will turn the administration of elections over to state party organizers. Okay. Organizations. All right, number two. We'll get through this. Uh, number two, clear voter suppression in Latino neighborhoods. In Helen Purcell's mad dash to consolidate polling locations across Maricopa County, she somehow forgot to have polling places open in densely populated Latino communities on the day of the primary. This is a glaring oversight, given that 40.8% of Phoenix's 1.5 million residents are Latino. Democratic State Senator Martin Quesada told azcentral.com that the lack of available polling locations for the Latino community was problematic. In my district, there is only one polling place, Senator Quesada said. In my neighbor neighboring district, LD30, there are no polling places. It is no coincidence many poor and predominantly Latino areas didn't get a polling place. AZCentral.com editorial columnist Elvia Diaz wrote Tuesday night. Three. Oh, boy. Democrats mistakenly registered as independents given provisional ballots. As Arizona voters are, were still waiting to cast their ballots, U.S. Uncut reported on allegations that voters who had previously registered as Democrat were instead listed in the voter database as independent, no party listed, or even libertarian. In Arizona's closed primary system, independent voters are denied their voice by having to vote with a provisional ballot. But what voters classified as independent who cast provisional ballots don't realize is that their ballots are never counted. 42-year-old Kelly Thornton, who worked as an election day technician in Yavapai County Voting Center on Yoyota Center 5 on Tuesday, told U.S. Uncut that roughly Two-thirds of voters who came to her precinct had been mistakenly identified as independent by the election software. All of those voters were subsequently forced to cast a provisional ballot. One man was a lifelong Democrat who was listed as independent. He left the precinct, went to his house, and came back with a card showing that he was registered as a Democrat, Thornton told U.S. Uncut. 
but when I called the election center, administered by the county recorder's office, they told me to just give him a provisional ballot anyway. People were so cavalier about it. It was like no big deal, Thornton added. Thornton was also given a script by the Yavapal County Recorder's Office to read to voters verbatim when they asked if their provisional ballots would be counted. The script outright tells the voter that if they cast a provisional ballot when the system lists them as independent, their vote will not be counted. I called the Arizona Democratic Party office around 1 p.m. and said, Something is not right here. They said someone would call me back, and nobody called me back, Thornton said. This is the exact same thing that voters have been experiencing in Pima and Maricopa County all day. Given that one of Bernie Sanders' largest bases of voter support comes from independents, it isn't hard to see why the Vermont senator lost Arizona handily. His core supporter ballots weren't counted. Four, suspicious evacuations of county buildings. These are just getting more, talk about heightening. These are getting more and more extreme. What will five be? Let's see. So four says, suspicious evacuations of county buildings at peak voting times. The office of the Pima County Recorder, which oversees elections in the Tucson area, received warning of a suspicious package in an adjacent garage, and workers answering calls from polling places had to put everything on hold for nearly an hour. By the time workers returned to the phones, they had to bring in additional staff to help with the call load. According to Tucson News Now, that wasn't the only location that received a bomb threat on primary day. Four locations in Tucson received bomb threats on Tuesday, so the building was evacuated as a precaution. At the time of the evacuation, the Pima County Recorder's Office had been staffing a voter helpline to answer questions about voter eligibility, polling locations, and other voting-related issues. And five. Calling Arizona for Hillary Clinton while people were still in line. At roughly 8.30 p.m. local time, a little over an hour after polls closed, with less than 1% of precincts reporting, the Associated Press declared Hillary Clinton the winner of the Arizona primary. In Democratic primaries and caucuses, delegates are awarded proportionately, meaning that even if a candidate wins a state, their opponent still gets a share of delegates. If the win is razor thin, delegates are split. A premature declaration of victory for one candidate may discourage thousands of people still waiting in line from voting. Kevin Gotztola tweeted, Only around 1% counted in AZ primary, thousands still in line, reports of voter suppression, but media, but media calls instantly for Hillary. Derek O'Keefe says, Totally bizarre and inexcusable situation in AZ primary. Uh, crazy idea. Don't report results if thousands of people are still lined up to vote because there aren't enough polling stations. Many on social media are crying foul over the incompetent primary process. A WhiteHouse.gov petition has been launched calling on the Obama administration to investigate the claims of voter suppression during the Arizona primary. The White House is obligated to respond to all petitions that garner over 100,000 signatures. Add your name below to demand an independent investigation. Okay, um, I don't know if I've signed this or not, and I'm gonna sign it right now. So while I'm signing this, and the link is on the Weekly Review webpage, so you can sign it too. Go to facebook.com slash weeklyrev. Let's play some more music. Um 
and welcome back to the weekly review that was cloud cult with no hell they're a band from minneapolis i uh, heard them on the the current it's a great radio station out of uh minnesota so as mentioned before uh there's an article another article here on uh, alex nieto alejandro nieto who was killed by police and yesterday i was in the castro with a friend of mine and we saw some graffiti that said uh roger morse is a killer and Roger Morris, of course, is one of the SFPD members who shot uh, Alejandro Nieto, and uh, they were acquitted of any wrongdoing. And then Roger Morris went on to then threat, make threats on Facebook to uh, one of Alex's friends and his parents, which is really messed up. So we'll get into that here. Um, but uh, just seeing that... Uh, uh, yeah. So, this comes from The Guardian. Uh, death by gentrification, the killing that shamed San Francisco. Alejandro Nieto was killed by police in the neighborhood where he spent his whole life. Did he die because a few white newcomers saw him as a menacing outsider? This is written by Rebecca Solnit, and it was published on March 21st. On March 4th, on what would have been his 30th birthday, Alejandro Nieto's parents left a packed courtroom in San Francisco shortly before pictures from their son's autopsy were shown to a jury. The photographs showed what happens when 14 bullets rip through a person's head and body. Refugio and Elvira Nieto spent much of the rest of the day sitting on a bench in the windowless hall of the federal building where their civil lawsuit for their son's wrongful death was being, held, was being heard. Alex Nieto was 28 years old when he was killed in the neighborhood where he had spent his whole life. He died in a barrage of bullets fired at him by four San Francisco policemen. There are a few things about his death that everyone agrees on. He was in a hilltop park eating a burrito and tortilla chips, wearing the taser he carried for his job as a bouncer at a nightclub, when someone called 911 on him a little after 7 p.m. on the evening of March 21, 2014. When police officers arrived a few minutes later, they claimed Nieto defiantly pointed the taser at them and that they mistook its red laser light for the taser sights of a gun and shot him in self-defense. However, the stories of the four officers contradict each other and some of the evidence. On the road that curves around the green hilltop of Bernal Heights Park, there is an unofficial memorial to Nieto. People walking dogs or running or taking a stroll stop to read the banner which is pinned by stones to a slope of the hill and surrounded by fresh and artificial flowers. Alex's father, Refugio, still visits the memorial at least once a day, walking up from his small apartment on the south side of Bernal Hill. Alex Nieto had been walking on the hill since he was a child. That evening, his parents, joined by friends and supporters, went up there in the dark to bring a birthday cake up to the memorial. Refugio and Elvira Nieto are reserved people, straight-backed but careworn, who speak eloquently in Spanish and hardly at all in English. They had known each other as poor children in a little town in central Mexico and emigrated separately to the Bay Area in the 1970s, where they met again and married in 1984. They have lived in the same building on the south slope of Bernal Hill ever since. She worked for decades as a housekeeper in San Francisco's downtown hotels and is now retired. He had worked on the side, but mostly stayed at home as the principal caregiver of Alex and his younger brother Hector. In the courtroom, Hector, handsome, somber, with glossy black hair pulled back neatly, sat with his parents most days, not far from the three white and one Asian policemen who killed his brother. 
that there was a trial at all was a triumph. The city had withheld from family and supporters the full autopsy report and the names of the officers who shot Nieto, and it was months before the key witness overcame his fear of the police to come forward. Nieto died because a series of white men saw him as a menacing intruder in the place he had spent his whole life. They thought he was possibly a gang member because he was wearing a red jacket. Many Latino boys and men in San Francisco avoid wearing red and blue because they are the colors of two gangs, the Norteños and the Sereños. But the colors of San Francisco's football team, the 49ers, are red and gold. Wearing a 49ers jacket in San Francisco is as ordinary as wearing a Saints jersey in New Orleans. That evening, Nieto, who had thick black eyebrows and a closely cropped goatee, was wearing a new-looking 49ers jacket, a black 49ers cap, a white t-shirt, black trousers, and carried the taser in a holster on his belt, under his jacket. Tasers shoot out wires that deliver an electrical shock, briefly paralyzing their target. They are shaped roughly like a gun, but more bulbous. Nieto's had bright yellow markings over much of its surface and a 15-foot range. Nieto had first been licensed by the state as a security guard in 2007 and had worked in that field since. He had never been arrested and had no police record, an achievement in a neighborhood where Latino kids can get picked up for just hanging out. He was a Buddhist. A Latino son of immigrants who practiced Buddhism is a kind of hybrid San Francisco used to be good at. As a teen, he had worked as a youth counselor for almost five years at the Bernal Heights Neighborhood Center. He was outgoing and participated in political campaigns, street fairs, and community events. He had graduated from community college with a focus on criminal justice and hoped to help young people as a probation officer. He had an internship with the city's juvenile probation department not long before his death, according to former city probation officer Carlos Gonzalez, who became a close friend. Gonzalez said Nieto knew how criminal justice worked in the city. No one has ever provided a convincing motive for why he would point a gun-shaped object at, a pol at the police when he knew that it, was probably, that it would probably be a fatal act. On the evening of March 21, 2014, Evan Snow, a 30-something user experience design professional, according to his LinkedIn profile, who had moved to the neighborhood about six months earlier and who had since departed for a more, who has since departed for a more suburban environment, took his young Siberian husky for a walk on Bernal Hill. As Snow was leaving the park, Nieto was coming up, um, coming up coming up one of the little dirt trails that leads to the, the park's ring road, eating chips. In a deposition prior to the trial, Snow said that with his knowledge of the attire of gang members, he put Nieto in the category of people that I would not mess around with. His dog put Nieto in the category of people carrying food and went after him. Snow never seemed to recognize that his out-of-control dog was the aggressor. So Luna was, I think, looking to move around the benches or behind me or run up happily to get a chip from Mr. Nieto. Mr. Nieto became further, what's the right word, distressed, moving very quickly and rapidly left to right, trying to keep his chips away from Luna. He ran down to the, those benches and jumped up on the benches, my dog following. She was at that point vocalizing barking or kind of howling. <coughs> the dog had Nieto cornered on the bench while its inattentive owner was 40 feet away. In his deposition for the case, under oath, his exact words were that he was distracted by a female jogger's butt. I can imagine that somebody would, could assume the dog was being aggressive at that point, Snow said. The dog did not come when he called. He kept barking. 
Nieto, Snow says, then pulled back his jacket and took his taser out, briefly pointing it at the distant dog owner before he pointed it at the dog baying at his feet. The two men yelled at each other, and Snow apparently used a racial slur, but would not later give the precise word. As he left the park, he texted a friend about the incident. His text, according to his testimony, said, In another state like Florida, I would have been justified in shooting Mr. Nieto that night. A reference to that state's infamous stand-your-ground law, which removes the obligation to retreat before using force in self-defense. In other words, he apparently wished he could have done what George Zimmerman did to Trayvon Martin, execute him without consequences. Soon after, a couple passed by Nieto. Tim Iskett, a recent arrival in the area, in the, is the communications director of a nonprofit organization founded by tech billionaires. He now lives in suburban Marin County, as does his partner, Justin Fritz, a self-described email marketing manager who had lived in San Francisco about a year. <coughs> in a picture, one of them posted on social media, they are chestnut-haired, clean-cut clean white men posing with their dogs, a Springer Spaniel and an old bulldog. They were walking those dogs when they passed Nieto at a distance. Fritz did not notice anything unusual, but Iskit saw Nieto moving nervously and putting his hand on the taser of, in its holster. Snow was gone, so Iskit had no idea that Nieto had just had an ugly altercation and had reason to be disturbed. Iskit began telling people he encountered to avoid the area. One witness who did see Nieto shortly after Iskit and Fritz, longtime Bernal Heights resident Robin Bullard, who was walking his own dog in the park, testified that there was nothing alarming about him. He was just sitting there, Bullard said. At the trial, Fritz testified that he had not seen anything alarming about Nieto. He said that he'd called 911 because Iskit urged him to. At about 7.11 p.m., he began talking to not at the 911 dispatcher, telling her that there was a probably foreign man with a black handgun. That a relative newcomer perceived Nieto as foreign says something unpleasant about assumptions about who belongs here and what kind of a place this is supposed to be. What race? asked the dispatcher. Black? Hispanic? Hispanic, replied Fritz. Later, the dispatcher asked him if the man in question was doing anything violent, and Fritz answered, just pacing, and it looks like he might be eating chips or sunflowers, but he's resting a hand kind of on the, on the gun. Alex Nieto had about five more minutes to live. San Francisco was never anti-newcomer. Until recently, it had always been a place where new people arrived to reinvent themselves. When they arrive in a trickle, they integrate and con contribute to the ongoing transformation. When they arrive in a flood, as they have during economic booms since the 19th century gold rush, including the dot-com surge of the late 1990s and the current tech tsunami, they scour out what had been there before. By 2012, the incursion of tech workers had gone from steady stream to deluge, and more and more people and institutions, bookstores, churches, social services, bars, small businesses, began to be evicted. San Francisco had been a place where some people came out of idealism or stayed to realize an ideal, to work for social justice or teach the disabled, to write poetry or practice alternative medicine, to be part of something larger than themselves that was not a corporation, to live for something more than money. That was becoming less and less possible as rent and sale prices for homes spiraled upward. 
What the old-timers were afraid of losing, many of the newcomers seemed unable to recognize. The tech culture seemed in small and large ways to be a culture of disconnection and withdrawal, and it was very white, very male, and pretty young, which is why I started to call my hometown Fratistan. As of 2014, Google's Silicon Valley employees, for example, were 2% black, 3% Latino, and 70% male. Tech companies created billionaires whose influence warped local politics, pushing for policies that served the new industry and their employees at the expense of the rest of the population. None of the money sloshing around the city trickled down to preserve the Center for Homeless Youth that closed in 2013, or the oldest black-owned, black-focused bookstore in the country, which closed in 2014, or San Francisco's last lesbian bar, which folded in 2015, or the African Orthodox Church of St. John Coltrane, which is now facing eviction from the home it found after an earlier eviction during the late 1990s dot-com boom. Resentments rose and cultures clashed. At 7.12 p.m. on the evening of March 21st, the police dispatcher who had spoken to Fritz put out a call. Lieutenant Jason Sawyer and Officer Richard Schiff, a rookie who had been on the job for less than three months, responded and headed for Bernal Heights Park. They tried first to enter it in their patrol car from the south side, the side where Alex's parents lived, then turned around and drove in from the north side, going around the barrier that keeps vehicles out and heading up the road that is often full of runners, walkers, and dogs at that time of day. They moved rapidly, but without lights or sirens. They were not heading into an emergency. At 7... 7... Uh, at 7... Uh, 7... At 7... Uh, seven, okay, it's at 5.40 p.m., Alexandro Nieto. Uh, seven, oh, at 7.17.40 p.m., Alejandro Nieto became walking downhill and uh, around a bend in the road, according to the 911 conversation with Fritz. At 7.18.08 p.m., another policeman in the park, but not on the scene, broadcast, got a guy in a red shirt coming toward you. Schiff testified in court, red could be related to a gang involvement. Red is a Norteño color. Schiff testified that from the, the 90 feet away, he shouted, show me your hands, and that Nieto had replied, no, show me your hands, then drew his taser. Assuming a fighting stance, holding the weapon in both hands pointed at the police, the officers claim that the taser projected a red light, which they assumed was the, la was the laser sight of a handgun and feared for their lives. At 7.18.43 p.m., Schiff and Sawyer began barraging Nieto with 40 caliber bullets. At 7.18.55 p.m., Schiff shouted, Red, a police code for the word for uh, the police code word for out of ammunition. He had emptied a whole clip at Nieto. He reloaded and began shooting again, firing 23 bullets in all. Sawyer was also blazing away. He fired 20 bullets. Their aim appears to have been sloppy, because Fritz, who had taken refuge in a grove of eucalyptus trees below the road can be heard shouting, help, help, on his cell, on his call to the 911 operator as bullets, as bullets fired by police were hitting trees above me, breaking things, and just coming at me. Sawyer said, once I realized there was no reaction, none at all, after being shot, I picked up my sights and aimed for his head. Nieto was hit just above the lip by a bullet that shattered his right upper jaw and teeth. Another ripped through both bones of his lower right leg. Though the officers testify that he remained facing them, that latter bullet went in the side of his leg, 
as though he had turned away. It is unlikely that a person could stand on a leg injured like that. Two more officers, Roger Morse and Nate Chu, drove up in the first patrol car, got out, and drew their guns. There was no plan, no communications, no strategy to contain the suspect or capture him alive if he proved to be a menace, to avoid a potentially dangerous confrontation in a popular park where bystanders could be hit. Morse testified in court, When I first arrived, I saw what appeared to be muzzle flash. I aimed at him and began shooting. Tasers produce nothing that resembles muzzle flash. Chu testified that Nieto was already on the ground when they arrived. He fired five shots at the man on the ground. He told the court he stopped when I saw the suspect's head fall down to the pavement. Several more bullets hit Nieto while he was on the ground. At least 14 struck him, according to the city autopsy report. One went into his left temple and tore through his head toward his neck. Several hit him in the back, chest, and shoulders. One more went into the small of his back, severing the spinal cord. The officers approached Nieto at 7.19.20 p.m., less than two minutes after it all had began. Morse was the first to get there. He says that Nieto's eyes were open and that he was gasping and gurgling. He says he kicked the taser out of the dying man's hands. Schiff says he handcuffed him, rolled him over, and said... Sarge, he's got a pulse. By the time the ambulance arrived, Alejandro Nieto was dead. Nieto's funeral on April 1st, 2014, packed a little, packed the little church in Pernal Heights that his mother had taken t him to as a child. I went with my friend Adriana Camarana, a gregarious lawyer from Mexico City who lives in the Mission District, the neighborhood on Bernal's north, north flank. She had met Alex briefly. I never had. We sat near a trio of African-American women who had lost their own sons in police killings and routinely attend the funerals of each of other such victims. Adriana had become close to Refugio and Elvira Nieto. Their son had been their ambassador to the English-speaking world, and gradually Adriana was drawn into their grief and their need. She stepped in as an interpreter, advocate, counsel, and friend. Benjamin Bach Sierra, a former Marine who teaches writing at San Francisco's Community College, was a devoted friend of and mentor to Alex. He has become the other leader of a small coalition named Justice for Alex Nieto. In that springtime of uh, Nieto's death, I had begun to feel that what had was tearing my city apart was not only a conflict pitting long-term tenants against affluent newcomers and the landlords, estate agents, house flippers, and developers seeking to open up room for them by shoving everyone else out. It was a conflict between two different visions of the city. What I felt strongly at the funeral was a vital force of real community, people who experienced where they lived as a fabric woven from memory, ritual, and habit, affection, and love. This was a measure of place that had nothing to do with money and ownership and everything to do with connection. Adriana and I turned around in our pew and met Oscar Salinas, a big man who was native to the mission. He told us that when someone in the community is hurt, the mission comes together. We take care of each other. To him, the mission meant people who shared Latino identity and a commitment to a set of values and to each other, all held together by space. 
The sense of community people were trying to hang on to was about the things that money cannot buy. It was about home as a whole neighborhood and the neighbors in it, not just the real estate you held title to or paid rent on. It was not only the treasure of Latinos, white, black, Asian, and Native American residents of San Francisco had long-term relationships with people, institutions, traditions, particular locations. Disruptive has been a favorite word of the new tech economy, but old-timers saw communities, traditions, and relationships being disrupted. Many of the people being evicted and priced out were the people who held us all together, teachers, nurses, counselors, social workers, carpenters, and mechanics, volunteers, and activists. When, for example, someone who worked with gang kids got driven out, those kids were abandoned. How many threads could you pull out before the social fabric disintegrated? Two months before the funeral, the real estate website Redfin looked at the statistics and concluded that 83% of California's homes and 100% of San Francisco's were unaffordable on a teacher's salary. What happens to a place when the most vital workers cannot afford to live in it? Displacement continued to Displacement has contributed to deaths, particularly of the elderly. In the two years since Nieto's death, there have been multiple stories of seniors who died during or immediately after their eviction. Gentrification can be fatal. It also brings newcomers to neighborhoods with non-white populations, sometimes with atrocious consequences. Local newspaper, the Eastbury Express, recently reported that in Oakland, recently arrived white people sometimes regard people of color who are walking, driving, hanging out, or living in the neighborhood as criminal suspects. Some use the website nextdoor.com to post comments labeling black people as suspects simply for walking down the street, driving a car, or knocking on a door. The same thing happens in the mission, where people post things on Nextdoor such as, I called the police a few times, when it is more than three kids standing like soldiers on the corner. What's clear in this case of Niet what's cl clear in the case of Nieto's death is that a series of white men perceived him as more dangerous than he was and that he died of it. On March 1st, 2016, the day the trial began, hundreds of students of San Francisco's public schools walked out of, walked out of class to protest the, against Nieto's killing. A big demonstration was held in front of the federal courthouse, with drummers, Aztec dancers, and feathered regalia, people holding signs, and a TV station interviewing Nieto's friend, Benjamin Boxiera. Nieto's face on posters, banners, t-shirts, and murals had become a familiar sight in the mission. A few videos about the case had been made. Demonstrations and memorials have been held. For some, Nieto stood for victims of police brutality and for a Latino community that felt imperiled by gentrification, by the wave of evictions and the people who regarded them as menaces and intruders in their own neighborhood. Many people who cared about the Nietos came to the trial each day, and the courtroom was usually nearly full. Trials are theater, and this one had its dramas. Adante Pointer, a black lawyer with the Oakland firm of John Burris, which handles a lot of local police killing lawsuits, represented Refugio and Elvira Nieto, the plaintiffs. Their star witness, Antonio Theodore, had come forward months after the killing. Theodore is an immigrant from Trinidad, a musician in the band Afrolicious, and a resident of the Bernal area. An elegant man with neat shoulder-length dreads who came to court in a suit, he said he'd been on, on a trail above the road, walking a dog, and that he had seen the whole series of events unfold. 
He testified that Nieto's hands were in his pockets, that he had not pointed his taser at the officers. There was no razor lead razor there was no red laser light. The officers had just shouted stop and then opened fire. When Pointer asked him why he had not come forward earlier, he replied, Just think, it would be hard to tell an officer that I saw a fellow officer shooting up somebody. I don't trust the police. Theodore testified cogently under questioning from Pointer, but the next morning, when city attorney Margaret Baumgartner, an imposing white woman with a resentful air, questioned him, he fell apart. He contradicted his earlier testimony about where he had been and where the shooting took place, then declared he was an alcoholic with memory problems. He seemed to be trying to make himself safe by making himself useless. Pointer questioned him again, and he said, I, I don't care to be here right now. I feel threatened. The details of what had happened were hotly debated and often contradictory, especially with regard to the taser. The police had testified as though Nieto had been a superhuman or inhuman opponent, facing them off even as they fired again and again, then dropping to a tactical sniper posture on the ground, still holding the taser with its red laser pointing at them. The city lawyers brought in a taser expert whose official testimony seemed to favor them, but when he was asked by Pointer to look at the crime scene photos, he said the taser was off, and it was not something easily or accidentally turned on or off. The light is only on when the taser is on. Officer Morris had testified that when he arrived to kick it out of Nieto's hands, there was no red light or wires coming from it. The taser wires are, however, visible in the police photographs documenting the scene. One piece of evidence produced was a fragment of bone found in the pocket of Nieto's jacket. Some thought this proved uh, that his hands had been in his pockets, as Theodore said. Dr. Amy Hart, the city coroner, said in the trial on Friday, March 4th, that there was no photographs of his red 49ers jacket, which must have been full of bullet holes. The following Monday, an expert witness for the city mentioned the photographs of the jacket that the city had supplied him. The jurors were, were shown photographs of Nieto's hat, which had a bullet hole in it that corresponded to the hole in his temple and of his broken sunglasses lying next to a puddle of blood. The coroner testified to abrasions on Nieto's face consistent with Nieto wearing glasses. Before this evidence was shown, Officer Richard Schiff had testified under oath that he made eye contact with Nieto and saw his forehead pucker up in a frown. If a dead man has been wearing a hat and glasses, then Schiff was mistaken that he saw those things. When Elvira Nieto testified about her devastation at the death of her son, Pointer asked her about her husband's feelings as well. Objection, shouted Baumgartner, as though what a wife said about her husband's grief should be disqualified as hearsay. The judge overruled her. At another point, Justin Fritz apologized to the Nietos for the outcome of his 911 call and seemed distressed. Refugio Nieto allowed Fritz to hug him. His wife did not. Refugio, said, Refugio later said that at that moment, he was reminded of Alex's words, Adriana told me that even with the people that we have conflict with, we need to take a higher ground and show the best of ourselves. Adriana sat with the Nietos every day of the trial, translating for them, and when the court-appointed translator was off-duty, Boxiera, in an impeccable suit and tie, was right behind them every day, in the first of three rows of benches, usually full of friends and supporters. Nieto's uncle often attended, as did Eli Flores, another young Latino who was Nieto's best friend and a fellow Buddhist. It was a civil trial, so the standard was not beyond a reasonable doubt, just the uh, preponderance of evidence. 
No one was facing prison, but if the city and officers were found liable, there could be a large financial settlement, and it could affect the careers of the policemen. The trial was covered by several local media outlets. On Thursday, March 10th, after an afternoon and morning of deliberations, the eight jurors, five white, one Asian woman, and two Asian men, unanimously ruled in favor of the police on all counts. Flores wept in the hallway. The American Civil Liberties Union of Northern California published a response to the verdict headlined, Would Alex Nieto Still Be Alive If He Were White? Police are now investigating claims that Officer Morris posted a sneering attack on Nieto on a friend's Facebook page that night. San Francisco is now a cruel place and a divided one. A month before the trial, the city's mayor, Ed Lee, decided to sweep the homeless off the streets for the Super Bowl, even though the game was played 40 miles away at the new 49er Stadium in Silicon Valley. Online rants about the city's homeless population have become sim symptomatic of the city's culture clash. The open letter to the mayor published in mid-February by Justin Keller, founder of a not very successful startup, was typical in tone. I know people are frustrated about gentrification happening in the city, but the reality is we live in a free market society. The wealthy working people have earned the, the right to live in the city. They went out, got an education, worked hard, and earned it. I shouldn't have to worry about being accosted. I shouldn't have to see the pain, struggle, and despair of homeless people to and from my way to work every day. And like Evan Snow, who wanted to blow away Alejandro Nieto after their encounter, Keller got his wish in a way. Pushed out of other areas, hundreds of homeless people began to set up tents under the freeway overpass around Division Street on the edge of the mission, a gritty industrial area with, a f with few residences. The mayor destroyed this rainy season refuge, ci refuge city, too. City workers threw tents and belongings into dump trucks and hounded the newly propertyless onward. One of the purges came before dawn, the morning the Nieto trial began. When the trial ended with a verdict in favor of the police, 150 or so people gathered inside at the Mission Cultural Center and outside on rainy Mission Street. People were composed, resolute, disappointed, but far from shocked. It was clear that most of them had never counted on the confirmation from the authorities that what happened to Alex Nieto was wrong. They did not need that validation. Their sense of principle and history was not going to be swayed by this verdict, even if they were saddened or angered by it. Buck Sierra, out of his courtroom suits and in a t-shirt and cap, spoke passionately, as did Oscar Salinas, who had just posted on Facebook the words, Alex, you'll never be forgotten. Your parents will always be taken care of by us, the community. As I've always said, the unspoken word of La Mission is when someone is hurting, needs help, or passes, we come together as a family and take care of them. The, the Nieto spoke with Adriana translating for those who do not understand Spanish. And Adriana spoke on her own behalf. One of the most important changes in my path being involved in the Alex Nieto case has been to learn more about restorative practices. Because as someone trained in legal systems, I know that the pain and fear I know that the pain and fear that we are not safe from police in our communities will not go away until there is personal accountability by those who harm us. Adriana, her historian husband, and their friends, including an AIDS activist and choreographer who lived nearby in a ramshackle old building, had faced their own eviction battle last year and won it. But the community that came together that, that night was still vulnerable to the economic forces tearing the city apart. Many of these people may move on soon. Some already have. The death of Alex Nieto is a story of one young man torn apart by bullets. 
and a community coming together to remember him. They pursued more than justice as the case became a cause, as the expressions became an artistic outpouring in videos, posters, memorials, and as friendships and alliances were forged and strengthened. Adriana Camarena told the crowd, our victory, as the Nieto said yesterday, is that we are still together. And um, with that, uh, I'll put on some more music and be be back with uh, some uh, some more news in just a moment. And uh, yeah, it's also just a, a moment of uh, silence. to the weekly review that was uh l107 so uh moving onwards uh i feel like i need even more of a break uh, after for that story but powering along this will probably be the last uh story that we'll do maybe i'll find something positive yeah there is a positive story coming up we'll end with a positive one costa rica's getting rid of their zoos that's cool that is some that's some good news uh oh Okay, so this is along the lines of censorship and uh, uh, suppressing criticism of Zionism on campus is catastrophic uh, censorship, catastrophic censorship. And this comes from the LA Times. This is an op-ed. Again, suppressing criticism of Zionism on campus is catastrophic censorship. And Sarah Schulman, who's an activist and writer, uh, was recently... Uh, she's a teacher also at College of Staten Island, and uh, there's a, a group of students who are talking about Palestinian rights, and uh, there are certain people in Congress who have threatened to withhold funds from CUNY and also been spreading lies about saying that she was anti-Semitic and just spreading lies about the group and has been, really been going after the students, which is messed up. Um, it goes beyond, I mean, I definitely need free speech, but then also they're 
it makes me ashamed to be Jewish, to be quite honest, to have folks out there saying that people don't have the right to speak up about what's actually happening in the world and to not allow room for dialogue. I thought one of the points of, of Judaism is the idea is to, is to debate and to speak and to leave room to, to, you know, question what's happening and to, and to fight for justice. And the fact that that's not happening and people are being threatened is really uh, quite distressing. So this is also along the lines and it's not just happening at CUNY. It's also happening here in California. So this comes from the LA times. And this op-ed was written by uh, Sari Makdisi and Judith Butler, and it came out on March 23rd. Last week, a UC Regents working group released a proposed set of principles against intolerance, created in response to a series of anti-Semitic incidents on UC campuses. On March 23rd, the Regents will vote on whether to officially adopt those principles. Controversially, uh, the document was not only condemns anti-Semitism, but also anti-Zionism. We asked UC faculty members to argue for and against the statement, and uh, this is going to be um, just an op-ed here. Uh, carefully adorned in the is in the language of moderation of moderation and tolerance, the final report of the UC Regents Working Group on Principles Against Intolerance is a thinly disguised attempt to suppress academic freedom and stifle open debate on our campuses. The report presents itself as the solution to a problem that is actually hap that, uh, that is actually helping to manufacture. Its point of departure is the unfounded claim that manifestations of anti-Semitism have changed and that expressions of anti-Semitism are more coded and difficult to identify. It then not so subtly shifts to all generalization so broad it sweeps all before it. Opposition to Zionism often is expressed in ways that are not simply statements of disagreement over politics and policy, but also assertions of prejudice and intolerance toward Jewish people and culture. And so on to the inevitable coup de grace. Anti-Semitism, anti-Zionism, and other forms of discrimination have no place at the University of California. In a few paragraphs, the report conflates two distinct phenomena, hatred of Jews on the one hand and criticism of a political ideology on the other. The overall claim is that the latter, objections to the Israeli state, its military occupation, its demolition of homes, its two-tiered system of citizenship, is the new covert form of anti-Semitism. These are issues regularly debated in public discourse. It is imperative that they be freely discussed in universities as well. But if the report is adopted, scholarship and teaching that include critical perspectives deemed anti-Zionist could be branded illegitimate and open discussion shut down. All forms of discrimination must be opposed, including anti-Semitism, but this report is neither inclusive nor balanced in its representation of how racism operates on our campuses. In an age of unprecedented Islamophobia, Arab and Muslim students have suffered overt prejudice and repression of their views, yet the document makes only passing reference to their experience. It is less interested in actual conditions of intolerance that we all must oppose than in singling out and redefining anti-Semitism to include political viewpoints that it seeks to suppress. The report is merely the latest manifestation of a well-funded and increasingly desperate, even panicky, political campaign to eradicate criticism of Israeli policy from American campuses. A compelling student movement for Palestinian rights has emerged as have a proliferation of Jewish voices distancing themselves from traditional Zionist narratives and affirming the Palestinian right to self-determination, freedom, and equality. 
Not coincidentally, the focal point of this campaign has been an attempt to get universities to adopt a widely discredited State Department definition that collapses the distinction between criticism of Israel and hatred of the Jewish people. Although the UC report claims the need to track the evolving nature of anti-Semitism, what needs to be tracked instead is the drive to hijack for malign political purposes the definition of a genuine scourge. Ironically, by persistently misidentifying anti-Semitism, the promoters of this political politicized new definition will, like the boy who cried wolf, make it more difficult to combat the real thing when it occurs. Whereas the UC Working Group met with individuals and institutions unconnected to the university who have been promoting the redefinition of anti-Semitism, it seems to have made no effort to find balance by consulting the many scholars of Zionism, anti-Semitism, and the question of Palestine on UC's own faculty, relying instead on a sophomore dictionary entry on of Zionism. And the report was produced under a cloud of external pressure by, among others, UC Regent uh, Richard Bloom, who publicly issued a veiled threat. My wife and your senior senator, Diane Feinstein, is prepared to be critical of this university, unless UC finds a way to punish the supposed the new form of anti-Semitism. The report is as bad as it sounds. Its adoption would be catastrophic. It would be a travesty to let UC become a place where censorship triumphs over the pursuit of truths, however uncomfortable some may find them. And uh, Sari Makdisi is a professor of English and comparative literature at UCLA. Judith Butler is a professor of comparative literature at UC Berkeley and a member of the coordinating committee for the, Ameri the, Acad the Academic Council of Jewish Voice for Peace. <sighs> so there you have it. There we have it. There we are. Uh, I'll play some more music and then I'll get back with, we'll finish up with the positive news story as, uh, as promised, uh, here. And this is a song by a band called Sunflower Bean. Uh, it's a little bit, a little bit light. And, uh, and yeah, then we'll be back with the last story and that's it. <laughs>
and welcome back. That was a song called Easier Said by Sunflower Bean. And oh, as I as I promised, there was a, a happy story. It's from a while ago, though. I didn't realize. Uh, just checking in right now. It's from last year. Uh, it's still a happy story, though. So uh, this comes from HigherPerspective.com. Everyone's favorite Higher Perspective uh, news website. Uh, Costa Rica has announced that it will be the first country in the world to shut down its zoos and free the captive animals they hold. Costa Rica is an especially biodiverse country, holding about 4% of the world's known species. Sadly, the country is uh, contractually obligated to keep two of its zoos open for another decade. Oh. Still, after that, they plan to shut it down in favor of a cage-free habitat for the animals to live in. Treehugger reports that the nation, which also recently banned hunting for sport, will close the last two zoos in the next 10 years and give the animals a more natural habitat in which to exist. They want to convey to the world that they respect and care for wild animals. Environmental Minister Rene Castro says, We're getting rid of the cages and reinforcing the idea that interacting with biodiversity in botanical parks in a natural way. Uh, we don't want animals in captivity or enclosed in any way unless it is to rescue or save them. Any animals currently in captivity uh, that would not survive in the wild will be cared for in rescue centers and wildlife sanctuaries. No new zoos will be opened. That's great. Uh, I say no zoos, no cages at all. And maybe we can all work for a world like that. So we're going to be winding up here. I'll be ending with a song and then stay tuned uh, for playing a, an episode of uh, Women's Magazine with Global Val, followed by the Common Thread Collective. You're listening to Mutiny Radio. There's shows here every day of the week. Lots of good stuff. You can hear me here on uh, Mondays at noon with George Bracey and Jermaine Reeves for Trans World. And yeah, a lot of great shows. So check out mutinyradio.fm. Tonight, there's the Queer Open Mic at Modern Times Bookstore. Sign up is at 7. The show begins at 7.30. Yeah, support your local bookstores. Support your local businesses. Um, don't buy Monsanto products. Don't trust politicians. And there is the saying, uh, if voting were to change anything, they would make it illegal. And they've done, it sounds like in Arizona, they've, they've done their hardest to uh, to prevent people from even voting in the first place. Um, I guess the overall themes for this show is to... Uh, Again, really just not trust people in positions of power. That seems to be an overarching theme of life. So with that, I'm going to be playing a song I heard recently from uh, Ray LaMontagne. Uh, it's called Hey No Pressure. And yeah, I encourage everyone to have a safe and happy week. I'll be back next Friday.
Waffles. Yo, that is incorrect. <laughs> Actually, Alex, the food I'm talking about are cannabis-based medicinal extracts. Cannabis-based medicinal extracts? That sounds like you're smoking drugs, Ed. No, baby. There are smokeless, safe, and less expensive alternative to smoking. But can I use it to sleep? Yes, baby. Good. Because I'm so excited by this that I may never sleep again. And it sounds like you, Alex, may want to check out the number 4AltaCalifornia.com. That's 4AltaCalifornia.com for a non-addictive, pharmaceutical-free alternative to smoking medical marijuana. Check them out today at number 4AltaCalifornia.com. Are you tired? of swimming through a sea of podcasts. Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of mutinyradio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice. LGBTQ friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit face McRat. <laughs> You look like the kind of person who has a sense of humor. Uh, is the radio talking to me? No, I'm on an internet podcast. Uh, I'm talking to an internet podcast? Don't be silly. It's a one-way form of communication. But I don't want you to miss out on the Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival 2016 from March 2nd through 6th. And you don't have to. You can buy tickets now on universe.com with 24 national and international visiting comedians and 20 local hosts you won't want to miss a thing 
What if I can't be at every show? Don't worry. All shows will be available for free download at mutinyradio.fm until the internet falls apart. Oh, podcast god, I can't wait to listen to all these great comedy shows and everything else that's cool at mutinyradio.fm before the internet falls apart. You too won't want to miss a bit of the Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival from March 2nd through 6th, 2016. Buy tickets now. Brought to you by Subliminal SF, PBR, The Eagle SF, Brainwash Cafe, Asiento, and the great people at Alta California Botanicals. Have you heard of Subliminal SF? Visual and auditory mind control. Graphic design, physical merchandise, live music promotions. Go! www.subliminalsf.com for the most amazing t-shirts you've ever seen graphic design for every need and live music promotion at some of the best bars in san francisco that's subliminal sf visual and auditory mind control go to subliminalsf.com now Good evening there, my friends here at MutinyRadio.fm. Chester Cashcock here, and giving you my love and regard as well as movies over there. And uh, I just wanted to let you guys know that anytime I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. I mean, if anyone who knows anything about comedy knows that Pamtastic's books the best of San Francisco and beyond. Yo, it's a beautiful day in San Francisco. Val has to be otherwise occupied, but I'm going to be here, and we try to do the show. We've interviewed Francisco Raya, who's running for mayor, but but if we don't do it well, I'm going to do it as as a loner here. But anyway, there's going to be a beautiful show on a beautiful day, and Pearl. Dance performer uh, is going at 7:30. It's going to be at the Revolution Cafe, where she's going to gather with people and do a dance performance in front of the Revolution Cafe. Perhaps, uh, perhaps a dance, a dance to the mission. Remember the memory of our brother and his family, Alejandro Nieto. So uh, that's at uh, 3 o'clock. So come on through. Stay tune in. Stick around. But it is a beautiful day out there. And uh, a beautiful day. And one of the great things about this show, Roman, about our shows, that's each and every, each and every uh, Friday. Yeah. So if somebody, people miss that, you can say, well, come next week. Yeah. So whatever. It's about being flexible. It's about being... Uh, about being flexible, open-hearted, open mind, and open arms. Is that right, yeah, Jasper? And uh, oh, by the way, we can mention the fact that we've been in some financial difficulty here. Is that right? Yeah, that's true. And in fact, uh, so so in fact, uh, 
some financial difficulty, and uh, so uh, so what's going on? Let's tell let's tell the folks why why uh, keep it from them. Oh well, why we you know about it, so we we no longer have our, our funding from uh, like Alta, Alta California, uh-huh. so who's been helping out the station here? So we're we're looking for funding if folks want to underwrite any shows. We're also open to if people want to rent the space to hold performances here. Uh, uh, we're we're open to that, so you can check out mutinyradio.fm for for that information. So many ways. Where it's it's not that we're the, uh, the voice of uh, of what's happening around us. It's not only it's not the, the voice of it, but in many ways, the kind of things that you're getting here, you can't get it nowhere else, is it? That's absolutely true. We have uh, shows here every day of the week. We've got uh, music. We've got comedy. We've got spoken word. We've got politics. Uh, everything, everything you can imagine. It's completely uncensored, which is very rare these days. Fuck yeah. Yeah. Fuck yeah. And so we're kind of under the, uh, and it's kind of, we're kind of off the grid. Yeah. In one sense, but in another sense, we're on the grid, grid because each and every person who has a handheld device, uh, the, big, big, uh, the numbers are growing, 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 and has a handheld device, has a laptop, can in fact uh, anywhere pretty much on the planet they can hear these shows, is that right? That's absolutely true. You can listen anywhere. You can listen in at mutinyradio.fm and uh, listen, yeah, listen in anywhere in the, in the world. And streaming live. So this is a concept which we embrace and I think with the powers that be, they got their hands filled with other stuff and so we're able to continue to exist. I've been doing this for years. Oh yeah, when did you start? What well, year? I started by with uh, above ground radio, kind of above ground, but it was a KPO back in the early and middle 70s. Oh, wow. I was on for like 10 years. Very cool. In fact, when I came down. Yeah. yeah. Let's, let's talk about these things. It's really interesting. Uh, well, it's quite interesting, but uh, it's my history in a bit, my history. So I got this car, I was with, uh, we got this car, 409 Flighton, which was like a kind of a political center in, uh, in Nate Ashbury. And in fact, Calvin Welch, who's been on the show here, handed the phone to the heard Elizabeth and and said these people said, we like, we need a political talk show. Yeah, yeah. And I said, well, I'll do that. And uh, at first it was six in the morning. We're on Natoma Street in this garage. It was like, there were people like Nanashaka Sanga, and another one. Anyway, people were coming too. It was the time we support Bob Dylan, the music of the cafe, and revolution in the air. Oh, nice. And I realized that, the, and I had this vision of what Capu was. It was pretty much all it was called for Capu, standing for a poor people's radio. But in fact, it was an overwhelming bunch of white guys. It was kind of like college radio. Yeah. And there was very little sense of the upheavals that were going on. So the Black Panthers, the uh, Brown Berets, all the group, they had, uh, they had no concept of it. They had no particular interest in it. So I had the stock show uh, early in the morning, and I, I had a revelation that well, why not bring people down? We'll talk about what community radio should be and uh, help them make, make it happen. So people were coming down, the Panthers, the Brown Berets, uh, the Shaka Shaka was good, uh, uh, Chata. The station was transformed very quickly. Oh, excellent. And the, the, the white people, the white guys 
were there. Some of them are still there. They're all of them. I go like, oh, this is a really old guy. But this is like the early middle 70s we're talking about. Wow. And uh, for instance, I get a call sometimes. So I said, hello. I said, Diamond Dave, it's a new world liberation front. We just bombed the Bank of America. We left the communique, they call it. Oh, wow. In, in, a, uh, in, a, phone, in a phone book, it used to have a paper phone up on Howard Street. So I go, and then, and then uh, the, uh, the Chronicle, everybody was into this. There's all these kind of sympathizers. That's the way it felt. The Chronicle, they might work for these bourgeois companies, but they're really in sympathy. There was a time of, of change. Yeah, it sounds... So they, they bombed the Bank of America? That's what they say. Wow. Well, it was happening all the time. We had uh, a whole group of uh, groups, a whole group of people, collective people, who felt it was time to begin a... Uh, a, a uh, to begin urban guerrilla warfare. Yeah. We get, get to get a collective. Fight racism. Uh, the, the Simonese Liberation Front, Patty Hearst, yeah. this is one of them. And, and just one of them, there are many. I knew someone around the neighborhood, so I do 